Doug Gansler served as Attorney General of Maryland from 2007 to 2015, where he was also the president of the National Association of Attorneys General. He is now the head of the State Attorneys General Practice at Cadwallader, Wickersham, and Taft. John Bruning served as Attorney General of Nebraska from 2002 to 2014, the youngest Attorney General in the nation when he took office. He is now the managing partner of Bruning Law Group. Today, they will discuss the role of the Attorney General, specifically in the upcoming election. Let's listen in. Thank you very much for joining us today. I think this is kind of a very special day uh, to our very special guest speakers who you've now met. Um, there are, um, there's just a lot going on out there in the world right now that I think our speakers can uh, touch upon and give you some views and insights and knowledge uh, that are just, if you just think about what's going on in the world out there with uh, COVID-19 and issues like some states allegedly opening early and spike in uh, viruses and will litigation ever come out of that against anybody like state agencies, governors, et cetera. Uh, who knows? Uh, then you've also got, obviously, the, uh, the large-scale civil uh, and racial unrest and the possibilities of making major uh, changes in the policing uh, function in our nation. And obviously, the attorney generals and the states are very, very much involved in law enforcement functions. And then you may have other issues that uh, that Doug and John can can address um, dealing with voting issues and the issues about balloting and possibly more uh, mail balloting to ensure uh, to ensure safety uh, at the ballot. So I know that you've uh, been introduced to both of them. So I'm not going to repeat their background. They obviously have enormous uh, esteem and recognition uh, inside the legal community and inside the world of, uh, of, uh, of practicing in the field of attorney general practice areas. And so, uh, Doug and John, our format is to just ask each of you, if you would, to uh, each of you lead off and make some opening remarks, and then we'll open it up to questions. So maybe, Doug, we'll start with you and then, and then turn to John. Great. Thanks, Dan. And, and um... Good to see you. We actually met in your office many years ago when you guys had a fundraiser for me. So I appreciate that very much. Um, yeah, I guess, look, I, I would start with uh, the ground up, with it, which is attorneys general. And it's an oft over uh, viewed position in America. But um, they are the second most important uh, elected official in the state. They have incredible power, as you just saw Keith Ellison in Minnesota bringing the charges, charges involving George Floyd. You have Kamala Harris, who's the presumptive uh, vice presidential pick on the Democratic side. She served with us. Um, uh, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, who I thought would have been one of the best, if not the best, selection for vice president, though she took herself out, was the attorney general of Nevada. And uh, John and I both know Joe Biden through his son, Bo, who uh, Bo and I got elected the same day, and he was probably the person I was closest to of all the attorneys general when he was there. So. Um, the, the, the attorneys general have obviously great influence. Um, they're also reflective of uh, no labels in the sense that of the 51, and I'm including Washington, D.C., there's currently 25 Democrats, 26 Republicans. Um, they are, uh, there's a couple of races that are sort of of interest, um, Pennsylvania and North Carolina being the two of them, uh, both held by Democrats, Josh Stein in um North Carolina and, and Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. So those are the two most heavily funded races, um, but uh, you're probably less interested in those than, than some of the others. So I think in, in the overbroad view, and Dan, I think you hit on this, there's three things that are particularly different about this election than any of the preceding elections. Um, one is Donald Trump. Um, and I, I'm gonna try and be as neutral as I can on that, but he is a very, I think by all accounts, a very polarizing figure. And that, that can cut both ways. And, and one of the things I think it's done is really made people sick of the polarization and bring, is bringing people much more toward the center. I mean, the Democrats uh, in their nomination process had some, a real stark choice between the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders part of the party 
and more of the Joe Bidens and, and other moderates, Pete Buttigieg, Steve Bullock, some of the others that were in there on the moderate side and chose the moderate candidate. Um, many people thought the Democrats would not do that, that they would choose the, the more uh, sort of perceived, at least, far left candidates in Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So I think um, the, the, the Trump factor is something you know, that, that is very different, not, not in terms of policies, but in terms of sort of behavior and who he is, which we has, have not seen in, in past elections. The second, I think, as you mentioned, the COVID and how that affects things. I mean, you know, if you were to look at the two candidates, Donald Trump sort of soaks in the idea of being in his uh, rallies and being out there and in public. Joe Biden, the perception right now is that he's sort of lost his step a little bit and maybe he's better secreted in the basement uh, doing it, running his campaign from there. So there's some, some suggestion this is actually helping him um, let Trump do his thing and Biden is sort of the more generic Democrat. Because if you look at the presidential race, um, any poll would show you that the generic Democrat would beat Donald Trump. But if you have a Democrat on the top of the ticket who uh, in, that, that is actually polarizing or people don't like, and you give them a reason to vote against them, then Donald Trump could win. I mean, Hillary Clinton was the great example there. I mean, the vast majority of people who voted for Donald Trump didn't vote for Trump, they voted against Hillary. And, and the Democrats are, are, are trying not to give people reason to vote against Biden. Um, and the COVID, as you, you touched on, also has the mail-in ballot. And that's interesting. We just saw it in Maryland, we just had an election here. Turnout was substantially higher. Um, there are many of us, look, I, I drink politics. I've been involved in politics since I was 13 years old. I'm 57 years old, love it, study it, been involved in every part of it. But I walk into the, the election, the ballot box, and when it's time to vote for the Board of Education or the judges or the clerk of the court, I may not know who to vote for. And I'll vote for bad reasons, their name or whatever it is. The, the vote, the mail-in ballot has given people much greater access to information and they can make more informed votes because they have more time on the down ballot uh, races. But also it's it, what we saw in Maryland, we just elected a 30 six-year-old uh, as mayor of Baltimore, um, and largely predicated on the youth vote. There were a lot more young people that voted because of the mail rather than taking time to go to the polls. So I think that's also something you're gonna see have an effect in this election. And the last is the, the protests um, it, and what's going on around the country with that. Um, there's, there's gonna be some backlash, frankly, um, this idea of defunding the police. Now people are sort of walking that back, um, kind of the, the concept of what that really means versus what it actually was purported to mean when they first came out with it. Um, I think you're seeing that. You're going to see some uh, cases, like, for example, without me commenting on it, the George Floyd case was inexcusable and there's sort of no other proverbial other side to it. The event that happened in Atlanta the night before last, people are ultimately going to have some issues. In other words, here's a, a man who was being stopped for uh, drunk driving, he was asleep in the car, he, everything's calm, they go to arrest him, and instead of what anyone else would do, which is sort of submit to that and deal with it, he attacks the police officers, pulls them down to the ground, grabs a weapon, and then runs. And so, and then while he's running, he turns around, and while he's shooting, a taser looks like he's shooting something at that police officer and ends up getting shot. So it's a little less clear, if you will, than the George Floyd. And I think you might, in the time between now and the election, start seeing some, some backlash on the protests. And, and um, thankfully, they've been keeping them pretty tame and not as much looting and so forth. Um, but it will, I think, have a massive impact on who Joe Biden can pick as his running mate. It's really, in my view, hamstrung him into the necessity of picking a, a woman, because he hamstrung himself on that, of color as a result of the protest. So I think that's, um, I think that's what's sort of going on, uh, on on the grand scale. In terms of the actual elections, um, I do think uh, there, there's little chance that Joe Biden will lose um, as long as he keeps, maintains um, senility and, and other things and he's sort of stay, doesn't do anything too controversial. Um, and I do so. I do think he'll win. 
and the Senate is going to be where the battleground is. You have 53 Republicans, 47 Democrats, but unlike two years ago, the vast amount of seats that are, are trying to be held are Republican seats. The, defend, the, the Republicans have to defend 23 seats, while the Democrats only have to defend 12 seats. So th that's going to be uh, where I think the battles are going to be waged, and it's too hard to figure out uh, what's going to happen there. So with that, I'll uh, give my time over to General Bruning. Hey, John, we're interested in hearing from you. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you, Dan. And uh, Doug Gansler, by the way, is a dear friend of mine, uh, former Democrat attorney general. I'm a former Republican attorney general. There's a lot to be concerned about in American politics. You wonder, is it so polarized that we can never come back? I can tell you, at least in AG world, the attorney general world, there's a lot to be optimistic about. It's not particularly noteworthy that a former Democrat president of NAG, Doug, and a former Republican president of NAG, me, are good friends. There are good friends across the aisle in attorney general world. And as soon as I start to feel down about, you know, I think about the Senate, it used to be there were a half a dozen Republicans that were more liberal than uh, the half dozen Democrats that were conservative. You saw the overlap, Daniel Patrick Moynihan or Ben Nelson from Nebraska, a conservative Democrat, a, a liberal Republican, those, those people existed. As soon as I start to worry about whether where America's going, I get on a call with you, with, with very smart people at the, at the top echelon of American society who are thinking about this problem. And I think about the attorneys general, where there's still hope. You know, the attorneys general, there are bipartisan investigations of Google, whether you agree with it or not, they have your information, they know your location, now, whether you've shared it with them or not. There are bipartisan investigations of companies uh, with regard to the opioid uh, issue, which is a major American issue. I mean, tens of millions of Americans became addicted uh, as the companies that both manufacture and distribute those drugs were either complicit or uh, uh, purposely unaware. Bipartisan investigations where Democrat, Democrats and Republicans are talking to each other this week, last week, last month about the best thing to do for America. So there, there's still hope. I, I think it's, you know, do I think it's critical that you are doing what you do and gathering on these Zoom calls now and presumably gathering in person when the moment allows? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely critical. For those of you that are concerned about the president, uh, and I've met the president a half a dozen times and he's, he's as nuts as you think he is. Uh, and those of us on the Republican side that voted for him in 2016, we still think he's nuts. Um, you know, whether the same amount of, uh, of Republicans will vote for him in 2020, that's an open question. Um, I can tell you, you know, for example, we get at a Republican attorneys general meeting in 2014, we show up at the, the Trump Doral course in Miami, and he has a roll of blue painters tape, and he's putting one inch squares on the wall. And I said, hey, uh, Donald, I'm John Bruning. I'm the attorney general of Nebraska. He said, I'm Donald Trump. Nice to meet you. So what are you doing with the blue painter's tape? And this is a true story. He said, there's 523 magazine covers with my face on them. And this golf club only has 150 of them up. I want to show the maintenance guys where to put the other, uh, you know, 373 magazine covers. So he's just as nuts as you think he is. Um, the bright spot in the president, think about today, the Supreme Court near Neil Gorsuch, who many of you probably thought, here's another right wing hack lawyer voted to extend the federal protection uh, of the uh, federal law protection to same sex or to homosexuals in the workplace. Okay, Neil Gorsuch voted with the majority. Now, whether you agree or disagree, not everybody that Trump uh, appoints is going to be the furthest right wing hack you've ever seen in your life. That happened today, the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, Trump appointee. And I can tell you in my little law firm here where my chief of staff, who you can't see, the former chief of staff, now my law partner sitting over here to my left, my former deputy, my other former deputy. Those are the people that are being appointed to the federal courts, moderate center-right Republicans who are in the state AG offices are starting to be in the federal courts. Now, you may read about the ones where you say, oh, crap, this person is right of Attila the Hun. Uh, but I can assure you there are capable, decent people that are being put in the federal judiciary uh, in many cases, not all cases. You can always find a case, and I'm sure a, 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 you know, a, a, 
America's best litigator like Dan Webb. He's at the absolute top of the pyramid. He's seen them all in terms of judges. Uh, some are good and some are not. But uh, there are a lot of reasons for hope. And, I, you know, I don't know whether the president will win. I know that, uh, you know, he's out there and the Republicans, as we talk about it, uh, even my client, you know, I have clients that run the gamut like Doug does. Uh, I represent Sheldon Adelson. I represent Ford Motor, Home Depot, across the gamut. Even the Republicans, as we gather, we say, man, I wish this guy would stop talking. Just stop talking. Don't, don't be mean to anybody for a week. Uh, even those of us that, that were ended up being supportive in 2016. So I don't know how you get there, but I'm, I'm all for a, it was mocked roundly in the 90s, early 90s. I'm all for a kinder, gentler America and to get back to that. And I know that uh, many, many Republicans are what you think they are or not. And I, I'm so grateful to No Labels and to Nancy, what you've created, uh, because it's just very, very special and very important to America that you have top tier, top of class uh, people like you have on this call, I, my jaw hit the floor when I looked at the list uh, that are interested in the American political system and how to fix it. John, thanks a lot for those comments. And while I have both you and Doug here, let me move a little bit away from partisan politics. I want to talk about the issue. Well, I have you both here. You both were attorney generals of prominent states, Republican and Democrat. You're both close friends. You both served as the president of the very powerful uh, National Association of Attorney Generals. The truth is, you guys are associated with law enforcement. When you're the Attorney General of a state, you are the top leading law enforcement officer in that state. And so I am kind of curious about this issue. I, I've, I've lived decades in this country where we have major issues of law enforcement uh, engaging in horrific contact uh, conduct towards minorities. And by the way, Doug, if I have time today, I want to come back and ask you a question about Atlanta, because that you talked you touched upon a very important nerve that the media is intentionally ignoring right now today. Uh, and I'll come back to it if we have time, because I got people in the queue here. But my question to start with, and Doug, I'll just start with you and move to John. What does this mean to defund law enforcement? I mean, are we going to really talk about changing the structure of police interaction, the first contact with offenders, and we're going to bring in social workers and have them interact with, no, I seriously, I want to know what you guys connected to law enforcement think, and by the way, Joe, I'm sorry, Vice President Biden did not bite on this issue last week, right? He kind of, he kind of took a little bit of a pass on it. So, Doug, when you talk to folks in law enforcement now that you're so closely aligned with, what does this defunding law enforcement mean in the real world and where is it going? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I was, I was a prosecutor, as I mentioned, uh, for 22 years, both federal, state, local. So this is an issue that's been very dear to my heart. I was actually the head of the NAACP Criminal Justice Committee um, in Montgomery County, Maryland in 1989 to the early 90s. It's been an issue that I think is um, now kind of obviously coming to the fore. Um, but starting at the beginning, the defunding the police, I think, is, um, and Joe Biden, by the way, was clear on that. He was against it. Um, it just, it obviously makes no sense. Now, what they're talking about is the kind of thing that you alluded to saying, well, we don't really mean taking all the money away from the police, but we're talking about funneling money into other, like, mental health services and counseling and so forth. And that's certainly fine, but everybody, you know, the, everyone needs, we need the police department. I mean, in Baltimore, which is our biggest city, there's 350 to 400 people murdered a year, and that's with the police department. Um, and so you can imagine what it'd be like if you didn't have police. So I do think, though, um, you're going to see major reforms. I mean, this the, the one that seems to be sort of getting the most traction is this idea of getting rid of chokeholds, which to me is, is a red herring because there's no sort of evidence that more African-Americans are, are getting chokeholds than, than white defendants, um, where the real issue I think is going to be is on uh, diversity training, making sure there's cultural training around uh, with police departments, make sure there's more diversity within the police departments in terms of hiring. Um, I think that's where you're going to start seeing eventually uh, change. And, you know, and, and I think you see it, we saw in the gay rights movement, I was very ahead on marriage equality, like five years ahead, and I wrote this opinion and saying marriage should be 
between whoever you want it to be, and they tried to impeach me. Um, but I believed it. And I think the reason why that took hold was because people started to know gay people, and they had them in their family, their neighbors at work. I think you're going to see the same thing here um, with people, African Americans. I mean, I work for, as, as you know, the oldest law firm in America, Catawata Wickersham and Taft. And you, no one thinks of that as sort of being the cutting edge progressive law firm in the world, but they've come out, our managing partners come out with incredible uh, tomes about this issue. They changed our blue sea to the rainbow sea. I think all institutions, all bodies, all companies are starting to look at themselves and do some inspection, introspection that they heretofore had not done. So I think that's going to be the big thing with the police departments to sort of look at how they're formed and who's who's actually in there. Are they going to do some other reforms uh, uh, along the line of the chokeholds and things? Yes. I think ultimately, though, um, the notion that was really in the early 2000s and even in the 1990s of community policing and ultimately community prosecution will is important uh, because that way, right now, the problem is a lot of distrust, as you can see, between law enforcement and the community and they need to bridge that. One of the ways to do that is community policing and community prosecution. Uh, John, it's Dan. Let me ask you to uh, kind of maybe comment on the same subject matter. And maybe I'm curious about the view you get from other attorney generals. It's one thing, absolutely, to, there's going to be, I think, enormous and very important reforms that will come out of, of, of what has happened in the last several weeks in America. And it's all for the good. I'm curious about actually changing the structure of police departments. I'm not talking about improving training. I'm not talking about no longer being able to use certain uh, techniques in, in, in uh, dealing with offenders. I'm talking about fundamental changes in the structure of policing in America that might change, for example, who are the first interactors with offenders and things like that, or whether that's not going to happen. I'm just I'm curious about what you and people that you know you talk to in the AG world think about that today. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a great point. And and police departments are going to have to modernize in that way. They're going to have to be in large part social workers. If you have somebody in mental health crises, send some. You, you don't send out a big cowboy with a gun. Uh, that's not the way to do it. It just ends up resulting in in bad outcomes. In, you know, in Sweden, for example, they, they do a lot of that type of training uh, where they're trying to weed out the cowboys, the guys that want to fight. You know, it's sort of the stereotypical guy with a flat top that wants to throw some punches. And law enforcement is not all like that, but certainly there are people like that in law enforcement. Part of the problem is it's very difficult to weed out the bad apples. And, and this is a little bit against interest because I was tight with the police unions when I ran. But it's very difficult for an elected state attorney general or an elected county prosecutor to get sideways with the police union. And the police union's job is to defend the, all the bad apples. They defend every apple. But I think, as Doug will tell you, as a veteran of a number of elections, those police unions are critical uh, to your ability to be elected. But at times, they end up uh, supporting the bad apples. And when those guys stay in, you have, uh, you know, tragedies like happen in Minneapolis. So I don't know how you reform the police unions. They've also been a financial train wreck in a number of states where police have been able to retire after 20 or 25 years with 80% of their uh, salary. That uh, has been uh, very destabilizing to communities and states around the country. Uh, but as far as weeding out the bad apples for violence, those that have a propensity to violence, those officers, we have to do a better job of I want to turn to our business leaders, and Liz has been sending me a queue, I guess, of people. So I'm going to kind of go through, Liz, your queue, okay? And start with number one, uh, Doug Scribner. I understand that you had a question. Yep. Thank you, Dan. Good to see you. Uh, gentlemen, uh, I think everybody would agree that uh, integrity of elections is critical, but you've got a spectrum of views uh, as to uh, what the issues are and how to deal with it. At one end, you may have those who say suppression of the electorate is the issue and election fraud doesn't exist. The other end, you may have people who say that election fraud is a, it's a massive problem and requires massive interventions. And as with most issues today, it's fairly polarized. You don't have that much in between. wonder if you guys could comment on sort of what you see as the issues confronting integrity of our elections and how we might deal with that. 
Um, I'm happy to start, John, while you get, collect your thoughts. Um, I, look, I think it's a real thing that happens in some places. I, I don't think, though, uh, that voter suppression um, is happening everywhere all the time. I think that there are, is more and more access to the ballot than there ever has been. Um, the mail-in vote it, uh, will help significantly, I think, on, on that as well. Um, there are cases where there's voter suppression. And, and um, you know, one of the things, uh, I guess I'll touch on two different things that are sort of tangentially related. One is what you're seeing, and John mentioned it earlier about big tech. You know, Facebook and Twitter and, and these companies are now confronting this whole issue about where does the First Amendment and, and where does sort of voter suppression, the crossroads there, and should they be taking down speech that is false? I mean, do you want some, you know, 25-year-old dude with a, a ponytail sitting in, a, in a, a little room out in Menlo Park making decisions about what the clerk of the court in Lincoln, Nebraska is saying, whether that's true or not, you know, people can have arguments on both sides. But I think that issue is going, is going to continue to be uh, interesting, what big tech allows and what they don't allow. And then the big elephant in the room is, is Citizens United. Um, and where is that going to go? And the amount of money that is spent on elections to, I mean, is it voter suppression? I depends on how you define that, but broadly, sure. Um, the amount of money that's coming in, dark money, money you don't know where it's coming from, what pack, who's supporting which packs. Um, and, and so I think that's going to ultimately have to be curtailed. Yeah, Doug, I think it's a great question. I, I would say that voter suppression is much more likely than voter fraud. There's scant evidence about voter fraud that there are legions of people showing up and saying, I'm Doug Scrivener and voting in the election in your state. That just, there's, there's almost no evidence of that. And I think suppression takes sort of a, I think it's more about negligence and funding than it is outright voter suppression. Uh, now, maybe it ends up being the same thing in the end if you don't fund enough polling places in uh, minority areas. So it's it's really a funding issue, I think, by and large, and a volunteer issue. I mean, in Nebraska, the elections are run by volunteers. I think that's true in most states. So it just becomes a, a, a manpower and funding issue to set up those polling places. Ultimately, I think that the issue for both is going to be in the uh, 21st century is going to be how to use technology to vote online. And we're sort of learning that the hard way in this 2020 election because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we're finding out that it works, that, uh, you know, there are secure systems. Uh, I think we have to take our international foes very, very seriously. They are, there's been, you know, exquisite reporting about the Russians' attempts to influence the 2016 election. I don't think there's any doubt they're trying to do it again. Uh, and it certainly concerns me that if we're not taking every precaution uh, to ensure they don't do it again. But for me, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of voter fraud going on. I think it's more about suppression. Uh, Lee, Adrian, I had to, I see you have a question. Yes, thank you. Uh, you've already spoken, going back to police reform for a moment, you've spoken about several elements of that, about chokeholds and training, possibly restructuring the work, having people who are more trained or qualified on essentially social work, but that may be the need that's there. But there are still dangerous elements to the job. Uh, one of the proposals that people are throwing around is to change the rules on qualified immunity. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on that issue and how you balance the, the reasonable need of the population to be protected from potentially overzealous or overviolent uh, uh, application of the law with the reasonable uh, need uh, to protect pe policemen who are doing their job to the best of their ability in what is a dangerous job. Yeah, so um, a couple of things. Uh, John alluded to it as well. One of the things that people are, are most dissatisfied with when they think about the sort of immunity, which is a little bit different than sort of sovereign immunity that a government would have, a police officer doesn't have that in most cases. But what the unions have been able to negotiate in most police departments is something called Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, where a police officer is involved in a shooting or uh, some sort of potentially criminal act, and they don't have to talk to anybody. They don't have to give a statement to anybody for, in some places, five days, some places, 10 days, some places more. <clears throat> well, if you have five or 10 days to sort of talk to all your colleagues, get their stories, get your story, talk to a few lawyers, then you're coming in and giving your first statement. 
most other defendants don't have that right, and people are uh, want to see that change. So it'll be interesting to see the friction between the power of the police union and what mo many people think that, that there's no sort of real basis for doing uh, for for doing that. So I think um, that's part of it. And then you have to be think innovative. And one of the things I did, for example, when I was the DA, this is called state's attorney in, in Maryland. I took every time a police officer shot his or her gun and put that case in front of the grand jury and let 23 people from the community, here's what the standards are, here are the rules, and let the community decide, was that a justified or was that not a justified shooting? Because it's easy, I don't know if any of you ever done this, but it's easy to sort of judge from the cold view of what happens. But um, it's a, if you ever done something called the fax machine or one of these simulated machines on law enforcement where you're going into a domestic violence situation, they give you a fake gun, but there's screens up, it looks like a movie, and there's kids riding the bike through, and you just things you just can't expect. And I happen to come from a school that believes that most people don't wake up, that most police officers don't wake up and say, I want to be a police officer so I can go out and kill you know minorities or people of color. I think there are judgments and sort of uh, latent biases that do exist. But I think that if, if they're able to explain themselves in, in the situation, some are inexplicable. The Eric Garner situation in Staten Island, the George Floyd, and then others are are more explicable. Um, so, you know, I think that's uh, I think that's where we are. Yeah, I mean, Doug, to to your point, I mean, a lot of these are very close calls, very difficult decisions to make as a police officer, and then as a prosecutor. And I do think one of the failings of the Trump administration at this point is they have allowed DOJ to check out on review of these cases from a civil rights basis. It's important to have D the Department of Justice federally looking at, because as I mentioned earlier, as an elected state attorney general or an elected, for Doug, state's attorney or district attorney, you work hand in hand with the police all the time. My a big chunk of our election campaign was the endorsement of 90 of our 93 sheriffs, the close relationship with the state patrol, the endorsement of the Omaha Police Union. So when you run for office in that way, which many attorneys general do because the population wants law and order, and then you have a, a close call bad actor as a police officer, it's very difficult when the police union is saying, hey, we got you elected. Now, you don't want to prosecute this guy. Now we did anyway, because I went in thinking I'm going to do the right thing. come hell or high water. And we did, we prosecuted a dozen police officers. I prosecuted a couple of County attorneys, but those are tough calls to make. And those take a chink out of your armor. And you know, if I hadn't, maybe I'd be governor. I mean, who knows, right? Every time you lose a percent here and a percent there, that's how elections are won and lost. Not everybody in politics like Doug and I, where you think you're going to do the right thing. I think I did the right thing. But, you know, there are people that want to win at all costs, uh, particularly today. Uh, Richard Davis, did you have a question? Okay, so in part, my question was addressed uh, a moment ago. because It relates to the issue of the ability to have confidence in the investigations by particularly local DAs in these kind of cases when there's, they work so closely with, um, uh, with police departments. And my own experience, I'm a longtime former prosecutor, uh, is permanent special prosecutors, particularly permanent uh, single purpose special prosecutors have their own problems. And I don't think they're necessarily good. And we have seen in New York and now in, uh, in Minnesota in the one case, but in New York now it's become standard practice to refer these cases to the state attorney general. So what do you think are the options? Uh, do you think it is a good idea to refer to state's attorneys generals as opposed to leaving with the local DAs? Do you think that there are other ways to enhance the ability of uh, people to have confidence in the uh, objectivity of the investigations and the decisions whether to prosecute? Well, I think that, look, I, I do think this idea of community policing, take New York, for example, <clears throat> instead of having the entire city broken up into the districts that they have, you actually can do it by neighborhood. So you have police, like it's, it's sort of going back to the concept of officer friendly. I, you know, I mean, I'm sort of, it's a little hyperbolic, but that's the idea that you have police officers walking the streets in a particular community and neighborhood. So the neighborhood and the community gets to know that police officer. You also have a prosecutor 
that's also the prosecutors also signed by neighborhoods where you have senior on down to junior prosecutors working in that neighborhood as well. And what you find when I put that in when I became the Montgomery County, Maryland, it's over a million people. It's fairly big. And we put it in and the police were very resistant to it. And one of the things that um, they, they were resistant to was the idea that prosecutors were going to oversee the way in which they conduct their business. In fact, they ended up liking it because we were there from the, the night of the murder or the shooting. We were helping gather evidence. But the corollary effect was we were able to sort of see which who were the bad apples and who weren't the bad apples. And we were able to ferret them out of the system, those that their, their story was always a little off and that kind of and, and that kind of thing. So I think <clears throat> I think you're going to um, there's going to be gravitation toward that down the road. So a lot of police departments, a lot of DA's offices are doing that. The, the problem with shipping cases out to the AGs are the people that go to work for an attorney general's office, very, very, very few of them are actually criminal prosecutors. As much as every time one of us runs for office as an attorney general and all the commercials are about crime, 95% of what an attorney general does is civil. And so it, they're, they're just not equipped to prosecute cases as the local DA. Now, if there's a reason to accuse him or herself as a DA, then they can, what we do anyway, is we send it to the next county over and let that, that uh, state's attorney's office deal with the case. But sending it to the attorney general's office, I mean, look at look what happened in Minnesota. Now, there's a, that's a tough case, right? So the attorney general gets the case. Clearly, the, the guy who killed George Floyd should be charged with murder. What degree we can all argue about. But the other three guys were charged with a crime, the three police officers. Now, that's going to be hard. When I say hard, I mean near impossible to prove because what is the crime? And now, they, they're, they violate every standard and every ethic and every, every moral of a police officer, and they ought to be fired for standing there watching another police officer kill somebody on the one hand. So they, they got the, the most draconian sentence, which is firing. But you have an attorney general coming in and charging three people who are standing around um, as this happened with a crime. Now, will that have reverberations down the road when they're not convicted? Who knows? Um, was it important to do to stop and quell some of the protests? Yes. Um, so, but taking it out of the DA hands and into some other office doesn't really make sense to me. The only place that would make sense is to send it to the United States Attorney's Office, but there you have to have a federal crime that's alleged. Richard, I, I think Doug's right on most accounts. I'd have a slightly different take. I mean, in some states, you're going to have a lot chance of a better, a, a, a lot higher chance of a, a strong outcome if you send it to the attorney general. Depends on the state. It depends if they have criminal authority. It depends if they have skilled criminal prosecutors. Doug, in my office, I hired former county attorneys, former DAs. They had 20 years experience. When you hire those folks and they're making the call, you know, we, I always said, and again, my chief of staff sitting over here to my left, listen, if, if we can go, if we lose Grand Island, we could still win the state. So if we got to go in and prosecute the mayor, prosecute the mayor. We're going to prosecute the, you know, police officer in Grand Island. We did it. And so we were going to do what was right. We knew we, you could lose a town here, lose a town there. But politically, the calculation is certainly in your mind. So not every elected official has that courage. So I think you need a belt and suspenders, which, as Doug said, is, you know, whether it's a federal authority. The DOJ has done this historically. They stopped doing it in late 2017, but they have reviewed these types of cases. I think it's important to have that belt and suspenders review. Uh, but the state AG is a good stop in a lot of states, not all of them. Uh, Maxine Clark, Maxine, did you have a question for our panelists? Yes, I do. So we've been hearing a lot of a, a lot about a couple of locations, cities where they've done some police reform. Uh, doesn't they didn't abolish the police department, of course, but they did some reform. Do you are you aware of those and what what kinds of reforms they made, and do you think they could work in a vast majority of cities? Well, so, and John just alluded to it, you know, it, it, under the Obama administration and previously under the Bush, both Bushes and going back, the Justice Department, when there were when there were cities that had systemic institutionalized problems with their police department, the Justice Department would come in and they'd issue a consent decree and there'd be a full investigation into that police department to determine what issues and problems they have. And there are about 25 of them 
that were going on when the change of administration happened and Jeff Sessions, when he was the attorney general, uh, stopped those. And so the, I think those are actually pretty important um, for, you wouldn't have a consent decree with every department in America, but the ones that clearly are having problems and the statistics and the numbers and the, and the trust of the community is just incorrigible. To have a consent decree and to have somebody come in and look at those departments um, makes a big difference. I, I, and you ask for examples, you know, I, I'm my little piece of the world over here. You know, I live in one of those states that's so small that they have to write the name in the ocean. But if you look at our uh, along the East Coast, I mean, that's where you have a lot of that, that, that reform. I mean, Philadelphia and D.C., both the both police departments, interestingly, under uh, Charles Ramsey, who was a wonderful um, police chief, really helped reform them. And, and what happens is the community trust goes up, the numbers of murders goes down exponentially, and number of and, and just crime is better. Meanwhile, Baltimore is sort of stuck in the middle, and nothing's happened there to fix it, and it's getting worse and worse. And so I think that 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 we will see next year, most likely, the advent of consent decrees coming back, and and some of the major police departments that do need reform will get that with uh, Department of Justice oversight. Yeah, we're in St. Louis where we had the consent decree for Ferguson. And, you know, at the beginning, I think you're right. It, there were a lot of changes made in the beginning. And then, of course, when it went away, you know, they retreated backwards to the old habits. And unfortunately, we still have some yeah. of those. But it just sounds like so sensible. And it also, you know, the fact that policemen would have backgrounds in social work or they would have social workers on their staff or uh, public health people that could really help them solve some of these problems because they are the last line of defense. They go into a situation of family abuse or anything. I mean, the violence is definitely around them. I would be scared to death too. But if they had the tools, they could probably be do a much better job at um, mitigating disaster. Yeah, Maxine. The one thing I'd add, I think that's. Yeah, I think you're exactly right in what you said. The one thing I'd add, I think we we have to add de-escalation training to all law enforcement. Right now, there's all sorts of training on how to fight and how to subdue and use your physicality against somebody that you're arresting. You know, not all of them have de-escalation training. And to me, that's key, uh, how to just take a situation and, you know, frankly, we could all use it, right? But particularly police, how to de-escalate a situation because you see all these situations, they just ramp up and all heck breaks loose and somebody gets hurt and the, you know, whether it's a policeman or somebody else. Now I, I would, you know, th this entire discussion, I, I would caution, at least from my perspective, we can't put all of this on the police. As you mentioned, Maxine, it is a scary job to do. You go out and people are, you go into a domestic situation and two, a couple is screaming at each other. Those are, I mean, there, those are situations fraught with peril. Uh, or the Atlanta situation, which, which Doug said, I mean, those are tough ones to walk into. Uh, and so, you know, I, I have I have a more than a modicum of sympathy for how hard that job is. Uh, Bill Galston, Bill, did you have a question of our of our group here? Uh, I do, Dan, uh, even though I don't qualify as a business leader, that's for sure. Uh, 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 Doug, good to see you. Uh, I worked with your father at the Maryland School of Public Policy years years ago. Uh, I even voted for you, but that's not going to stop me from asking a few tough questions. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, John, you're not immune from these questions either. Not even qualified. You, you don't even enjoy qualified immunity from these questions. <laughs> you know, first of all, first of all, you guys have done a pretty good job of persuading me that the state AG ought not to be an elected office. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're having, if you're having to figure out whether you can prosecute a mayor, you know, depending on how many votes there are on the town he he leads, and whether you can afford to give up those votes and still be elected statewide, that's the wrong question for AGs to be asking themselves, in my opinion. And I wonder what you think about that. But don't don't answer that until I lay a few other things on the table. Uh, I think that you are, you're, you're both in different ways, understating the urgency of the moment. And maybe that's just because you have, you know, you're tonally moderate, but I want to press you a little bit. Uh, 
all the survey research indicates there's been a fundamental breakdown of trust between police and minority communities across the country. These are not, this is not an isolated phenomenon. This is pervasive. And why is that? Well, you know, it wasn't always that way. Uh, I could take you back to 1994 and the crime bill and the attitudes of minority communities and legislators towards that bill. That was then, this is now. Stop and frisk has been a disaster for police community relations. Routine traffic stops for broken taillights you know, has been a disaster. Uh, shoot to kill orders when the suspect is running away from the police and not towards them have been a disaster. Uh, to which I would add, having policemen who by and large do not hail from the city, let alone the community, they're sworn to serve and protect, is an invitation to what we've been seeing. In Minneapolis, fewer than 20% of the police actually live within the city limits. Many of them live 20 or even 30 miles away in all white enclaves. So, you know, what about requiring a much higher percentage of police within a jurisdiction to be drawn from that jurisdiction. I could go on. There are really big issues on the table now. And, you know, Senator Tim Scott, the only African-American Republican in the senator, has been stopped half a dozen times in the past six years for nothing, including three times in the national capital, walking towards the Congress. There's a problem here. And we've got to do something about it. And I, I'd sure like to know what you want to do about it. So tackling the two broad issues, one is whether the AG should be elected. You know, that's an uh, ongoing issue. In fact, the um, person running for the nomination in Ohio for attorney general said that he thought maybe it shouldn't be elected when he was running for the elected job. And he got just slammed on that because folks think, well, there is a difference of philosophy. Prosecuting the mayor is one thing, but mo again, most of what you do is not prosecution. Like, for example, my biggest issue probably was the environment, was to clean the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, some one might argue that if I were of a different party, that might not have been as important. So I do think there are different um, philosophies that go behind the job. Now, that said, seven of the of, of the 51 of us are, uh, are not elected. Um, five are chosen by the governor. Um, Maine picks from uh, the, the Attorney General Janet Mills, who's now the governor, was, was a delegate, and she was picked from the House of Delegates to be Attorney General, and then she elevated to governor. I, I always say the most qualified Attorney General in America is that of Tennessee. Most of, the, most of the Attorney General that John and I know couldn't get elected in their own living room to something, but they're appointed by the Supreme Court of Tennessee, and they're always extremely qualified uh, and, and just very decent people. So there's an argument to be made. The U.S. attorneys in each state are not elected, um, but I do think that that people want to have elected attorneys general. D.C. forever was not elected. Carl Racine, the current attorney general, was elected, and it's really given him more power, more independence, and also um, independence from the governor, in that case, the mayor, which I think is an important thing to have. In terms of um, the urgency of the moment, I actually think that the urgency of the moment is very front and center um, and, and critical and important. And sort of as we sort of near the end of this call, going back to the beginning of the call, I think it's going to have a great effect on the election coming up. I think that the minority community is clearly going to be more mobilized. I do think there's going to be a little bit of a backlash um, as well if, if the hand is overplayed. Um, but there's certainly everybody is looking at all the police departments and, and all of corporate America, I would uh, submit, are looking at, are they part of the problem? Are they doing things that they just sort of, through inertia, continue to do that really do affect people? I mean, it's interesting, you know, they, they, I just watched an interview last night on TV with Bubba Wallace. I've never watched a car race in my life, but he's an African-American car driver talking about taking the Confederate flag down at NASCAR events. And it's like, you know, I'm sort of thinking, what if they had, you know, a Nazi flag at, 
those events, that would be equally disturbing. Or what if, you know, uh, uh, army bases were named after Nazis instead of Confederates? That, you know, people say, oh, that's different. But maybe for an African-American whose ancestors were slaves, it's not. And so we're looking at things differently. We may not make all the changes that some people want to see, but I do think people are, gonna, are thinking more about it. And I think people are embracing the urgency of the moment. Bill, I would say a couple of things. First of all, my dad was a professor at the University of Nebraska, 55 years, a professor of educational psychology. So I'm, I'm well acquainted with academics and being grilled, if that was your, and, and I appreciate it. Um, I, listen, elected attorneys general, first of all, don't you want some independence? Did you wish Jeff Sessions had more independence from the president, wasn't hanging on for his job? Elected attorneys general don't report to the governor, so we ha can have a separate political agenda than the governor's. Elected attorneys general can have a political agenda. You're appointed, you can't. The governor fires you and the next one's in. So the independence of an elected attorney general, I think, is critical to the office of state attorney general. So I, I didn't mean for that, you know, to give you, maybe I, you know, I let you look under the hood too much at the political calculus. I don't mean to startle you at the at the calculus of, uh, you know, the, the start calculus. I think, it, I think if I were going to, if I were one of you on this call and I were going to do a couple things, one, I think it's critical to register minority communities to vote so that they can express their will in the next election. Uh, I would, I, it's pretty easy to make an argument. If you go back to Pennsylvania and Wisconsin uh, and even Ohio, which wasn't that close that if minority communities had voted in more force, it wouldn't even have been a close election. Right. But they didn't, didn't show up. Minority communities didn't show up. That's one thing I would do. And switching gears uh, I think it's critical that office holders know each other. We've always joked it's very hard to uh, screw someone that's your friend politically. Uh, the groups like NAG, of course, have that happen, but there are groups like Aspen Institute. Uh, no Labels has done this very well. German Marshall Fund. Take Find your up-and-coming politicians. Aspen has been brilliant at this. And from both parties, put them together and put them in a non-threatening uh, room where there aren't reporters, and you'll find that magic can happen. And so those of you that have supported Aspen, good for you. Uh, some of the best programming out there. Uh, no labels, Nancy, you guys have been brilliant at your, at your bipartisan programming. And I think we just need to continue to chip away at it, frankly. Uh, and we'll have more opportunity for, for common ground. There's, we have much more in common than we, uh, than we uh, don't have in common. So I, I remain optimistic. And I tell people all the time, listen, as we get toward the end of this call, when you start to fret, I see my dad who just is driven crazy, right, by Trump. Say, Dad, the republic will withstand this president or any president. Uh, the republic is, uh, is, will withstand him or anyone. So we're on to the next election. It just it takes four years, but it goes by in the blink of an eye. Here we are, and in my opinion, the Republic will persevere. I, Liz tells me we have time for one last question. Uh, Sean Taylor, do you have a question? Uh, yes. Um, thank you very much. Um, you know, when we talk about police reform, you know, we're, we're not getting at the heart of the matter. We're just looking at symptoms and, you know, through all of this. I grew up on the south side of Chicago and one of the worst projects in the city, Ogil Gardens. And so I've been dealing with this my whole life and I'm 60 years old. Um, you know, I've, I've learned in the last several years the power of these police unions and and uh, John is it, I believe. And John, you know, you, you talked about the influence that they've had over elected officials. To me, it seems like you know, dismantling some of these unions uh, is at the heart of the problem here that we've got to address. Because having qualified immunity, when nobody else in this society has qualified immunity, and when you look at the statistics, once these unions have formed and they've passed this type of legislation, the amount of deadly force and excessive force toward minorities, blacks in, blacks in particular, has escalated over the years, not de-escalated. Um, you know, so how do we go about doing that so that, you know, people like you, when you're an AG can actually do the right thing and not have to, you know, prostitute, excuse my choice of words, prostitute yourself out to people who are hiding behind a law. Yeah. I mean, look, all unions have an enormous amount of power, particularly the democratic side, less so I think on the Republican side, 
Um, but uh, they, they all have power, whether it's the you know the UFCW or, or SEIU. Um, the police union has an interesting, unique power um, in the sense that as much as everyone is very hypersensitive about what's going on in, in, in with police brutality and police racism, um, which I think is a incredibly a wonderful thing that this urgency of the moment is happening, that people are looking at it and people are stepping out. And, and what I find sort of the most, um, I, I think, wonderful about it is when you look at these protests, how multicultural the protests are. And so I think people are really are, are recognizing this as a, a very severe problem, trying to do something about it. Police unions, though, um, do good things for overtime and making sure people aren't working too long shifts and that they're paid. I mean, uh, police officers are often underpaid and so forth. It's the one piece that you hit on that immunity piece that the law enforcement of rights where they don't have to come in and talk, give statements that I think you're going to see a backlash against now from, from all candidates. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the issues of police sort of, I mean, I remember growing up here, every, every one of my African-American friends in high school, I mean, everyone, every time they went to the next county over Prince George's, they would be pulled over for whatever reason. And so I think that's sort of slowly changing. But I think that it, it, it's systemic in our country. Thankfully, our kids' generation see color a lot, lot, lot less than our generation, and we see it less than our parents. And so it's, it's going to take some time, but you also need to legislate the police in some ways and make sure they get the right training to make sure this doesn't keep happening at the law enforcement level. Yeah, I think you said it well, Doug. And Sean, I think it's a great point. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure what the answer is, but this moment to me seems different. For whatever reason, this moment is different. And I don't know if it's a confluence of President Trump and the George Floyd being the straw that broke the camel's back, but this moment seems different. I feel like reform is going to occur. Um, you know, it'd be important to see what Joe Biden thinks because he was right there. If you, by the way, plug for the Hillary documentary on Hulu, it's four parts if you haven't seen it. And what makes me think of it is the 94 crime bill and how much things have changed in 26 years where President Clinton was gathering African American leaders to make it tougher on crime, uh, including giving police more tools and the militarization of police, which I think is yet another reform that uh, needs to occur is to take some of that militarization away. But Sean, it's a great point. I mean, I, we're talking about symptoms. We haven't really gotten to the heart of it. You know, and if I may some, say something on the crime bill, you know, that was a, to me as, as African-American in this country, that was a bait and switch, like a lot of, policies that are passed around law enforcement because it basically created the industrial criminal system here. You know, privatization of prisons, which prisons, which have corrupted judges and law enforcement and elected officials. Uh, and, and in the end, you talk about voter suppression. It has been the greatest voter suppression tool used in modern day politics. So, you know, we, we get a lot of stuff pushed out here under you know, you know, trying to be the crime president when in fact the people and in fact the people who are actually affected the most look like me. I'm done. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank, you. thank you. And uh, Liz, I understand we're out of time. And so uh, to all of you, I thought this was a great discussion. And Bill, we're going to turn it back to you for some closing comments. Well, thanks, Dan. It has been a great discussion. Uh, let me tell you what my big takeaway is that the state attorneys general as a group look uncannily like the House of Representatives problem solvers, numerically and in every other way. I'm really struck listening to the two of you, how absent you know, the normal partisan labels are from your views and, and everything else. And it strikes me that the state attorneys general can be a huge resource of good thinking and also modeling of the kinds of relationships we need in this country. And so I look forward, I think, I think this can be the beginning of a very constructive dialogue and relationship between low labels and the state attorneys general. And I hope very much that it will, will continue.
and thank you very much for giving us your time. No, and interestingly, if I just, just dovetail real quick on that, the state attorneys general actually look different than Congress too. I mean, we have two openly gay women attorneys general, Michigan and, and Massachusetts. The attorneys general of Nevada, uh, uh, of Minnesota, New York, um, DC. I mean, there's a lot of African-American attorneys general. It, it's a very diverse group as well, which helps the dialogue and helps us all learn from each other as well. Amen. There are three unusual factors to the upcoming election. One, the dangerous level of polarization. Two, COVID-19's impact on voter turnout. And three, the impact of the racial unrest and protests, specifically on Joe Biden's choice of a running mate. You just heard Doug Gansler and John Bruning discuss all these factors and why their bipartisan relationship could and should be a model for others in politics. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 